Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. Today, we're talking about diabetes. Most people who are at high risk for developing the disease and some people who already have diabetes don't even know it. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what causes diabetes and how to best treat it. And if it's not managed, it can take a huge toll on a person's health. It can lead to heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney failure. Today, we know that one in 10 Americans lives with the disease. One in 10. The good news is that research into type 2 diabetes, which is the most common kind, shows that managing diet and physical activity can help and sometimes even reverse the disease. So this hour, I'm talking with two doctors about how to support people in making changes that lead to better health. We'll also talk about the latest medical treatments and how genetics can put some people at risk. And I want to hear from you. As always, we are taking your phone calls. The phone lines are open. Do you have diabetes or are you at risk of developing it? How were you diagnosed? What impact has it had on your life? What helps you manage your diabetes? And what's still a challenge? What questions do you have for the doctors? Call us this hour at 651-227-6000. Again, that number is 651-227-6000. You can also call 800-242-2828. You can reach out on Twitter. I'm at Angela Davis MPR. Let's bring in our guests. We have on the line Dr. Aisha Galloway-Gilliam an internal medicine physician and obesity medicine director of the Comprehensive Weight Management Center at Hennepin Healthcare here in the Twin Cities. Good morning, doctor. Good morning, Angela. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your time. We also have on the line Dr. Rosalina McCoy, an associate professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic and a primary care physician as well, and the medical director of the Mayo Clinic Ambulance Community Paramedic Program, as well as an endocrinologist. Hi, Dr. McCoy. Hi, good morning. Thank you again for your time as well. So to get us started, uh, Dr. McCoy, what is a general description of this disease um, and what it does to the body as well as the different types? And I guess I'm going to ask you to, to start with type 2 diabetes because, again, I said that's the most common type. What does that do to our bodies? Absolutely. So, you know, when we think about diabetes in general, it's characterized by having high levels of blood sugar. Um, and that's really what diabetes mellitus uh, means and comes from. But there are different types and their cause, uh, they reflect the different ways that we can develop diabetes. So like you said, type 2 diabetes is the most common. And about 90% of people who are living with diabetes have type 2 diabetes. And that's caused when, uh, by our body becoming resistant to the insulin that we're making. So it helps to take a step back and think about, well, what is insulin right? and what role does it play? You know, sugar or glucose is the fuel that our body uses for all of its daily function. And our brain actually can only use glucose for its fuel. Now, for that sugar to enter all of our cells and do its work, we need insulin, which is a hormone that's made by the pancreas. So insulin acts like a key that allows glucose, which initially entered our body, you know, usually through food, digestion that gets into our bloodstream, but then insulin helps that sugar get from the bloodstream into our cells in order to do its job. Mm. So in type 2 diabetes, uh, people are resistant to insulin. There's actually a lot of insulin around. It just doesn't work as well, almost like having a rusty lock and key. So sugar can't get into the cells 
And as a result, sugar in the blood goes up, and that's what we can measure when we do a you know, finger prick to test blood sugar levels, and it doesn't get into the cells to do its job, which so, is why patients feel poorly. Well, I wanted to ask you, uh, what does untreated type 2 diabetes look like or feel like? Often it doesn't right away feel like any much of anything at all, and people can have a wide range of symptoms or, or minimal symptoms. And that depends on the blood sugar level and how quickly it got to that stage. So when someone has really high blood sugars, they can cause fatigue, blurry vision, uh, because that sugar also ends up you know, in the fluid inside our eyeballs, uh, increased urination, because we have to get rid of that sugar somehow, so it goes out in the urine, um, that itself causes increased thirst. Um, there can be fatigue, uh, numbness and tingling in the, you know, in the feet and hands uh, from even early signs of nerve damage. Mm. So those are kind of the mm. immediate symptoms of very high blood sugar. Now tell me about type 1 diabetes, which is, is very different. It is. So with type 1 diabetes, the pancreas does not make any insulin. Usually it's caused by an autoimmune destruction of uh, what's called beta cells. They're the cells in the pancreas that make insulin. So because there's no insulin around, again, thinking back to um, kind of our scenario of sugar circulating in the blood, there's no insulin to help glucose get into the cells. So again, blood sugar is high and it's not getting to where it needs to go. So we, it's diagnosed the same way because blood sugar is high, um, but blood sugars build up much more quickly uh, than in type 2 diabetes where some glucose still seeps into the cells and patients need insulin in order to survive mm -hmm. because there's really no other way of correcting the underlying problem of type 1 diabetes. Now, have the rates of diabetes increased uh, nationally and here in Minnesota? And, and to what degree? They, you know, rates across in the U.S., in Minnesota, and really worldwide have been increasing uh, dramatically. But there are hopeful signs that that trend that we've seen over the past 20 years have started to slow. So the rates of newly diagnosed uh, diabetes have been going down since peaking at a, in about 2008. So there are promising signs uh, that we're kind of curbing uh, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it's also reassuring that in Minnesota, the rates of diabetes are lower than the national average. That's good to know. Um, Dr. Galloway-Gilliam, what do you think um, is behind like, the, the increase in type 2 diabetes um, over time? What do you think was going on? Yeah, thanks, Angela. So this is uh, a topic of some controversy. I, when we look at the epidemiological data, what that shows is that as our food environment changed over the past 40 to 50 years, meaning more um, intake of highly processed refined foods and uh, sugar-laden foods, particularly beverages, there was uh, an, a remarkable increase in the uh, prevalence and incidence of both diabetes and uh, overweight and obesity. So additionally, people ask about physical activity. And while I guess, it, on average, the population became more sedentary, the amount of increased sedentariness um, did not really correlate as strongly with the onset of uh, diabetes and obesity as 
the food environment. And so I think in my review of the research and the literature, I feel strongly that this was related to a change in our uh, nutritional environment. And, and Dr. Galloway-Gilliam, you see a lot of patients who are referred uh, by other doctors uh, for weight issues. And I know that some people come to you on their own as well about their weight and their health. But what are doctors now learning about weight and diabetes? What's the connection? So this is a complicated relationship. I think if there were a Facebook posting about relationship status, it would be it's complicated. <laughs> the historical classical relationship has been viewed as a parent-child relationship, so to speak. So diabetes results from obesity. But what the data is starting to show and starting to suggest more so is that this may be more like a sibling relationship. So a common origin story, mm-hmm. um, it, diabetes and obesity both being birthed by the same parent. And what's controversial is what is that factor? What, what, who, who are the parents that are responsible for both of these conditions? And again, I think that, again, this is not, um, there's not a consensus on this, but in review of the, of the data, I think this again points back to our uh, environment and the way that our environment has changed, particularly involving nutrition. And our genetics are very much similar to what they were tens of thousands of years ago, our our genetics have not changed in keeping up with the way that our uh, food environment and our physical environments have changed. And this, in my opinion, has resulted in uh, the emergence of uh, these chronic conditions. And so as we talk about, um, you know, this being more complicated, What are we learning about the role of genetics, though? I mean, are are some people more vulnerable, even if they do manage their weight? Absolutely. Yes, there is a strong genetic predisposition. And some people are more vulnerable to uh, metabolic uh, conditions. Uh, People who that they've done studies that have looked at uh, twins, Mm -hmm. Uh, identical twins who were uh, adopted and separated at birth. And what they found as far as uh, metabolic health and uh, body morphology is that no matter what environment each twin grew up in, meaning uh, one twin having uh, sort of a um, environment that perhaps was inclusive of more healthful foods and more physical activity and the other twin not having the same environment, the body morphology and the overall metabolic health of the the, the twins ultimately was very, very similar. So there's a strong genetic component and it's uh, a polygenetic. uh, So so not one gene regulates uh, Mm -hmm. these manifestations, uh, making it even more complex. Dr. McCoy, I I always like to talk about what's changing. (laughs) What's new? We talked about, um, you know, that, that there's been research and, and some change. What do we know about diabetes now that we didn't know 10 or 15 years ago? And how is that trickling in, into the way that doctors treat diabetes, Dr. McCoy? Yeah, I think that's that's a really great question because there's a lot that we, I think, know and a lot that we appreciate that we don't know um, about uh, 
think the or the pathophys the origin of diabetes as well as its progression uh, that impacted how we approach treatment. And I really break it down into kind of two things. So one is really what is causing diabetes, and really just like Dr. Galloway Gilliam has said, the relationship between our environment, um, what we our genes, right, our activity level, um, the stresses that we experience every day, and how that interfaces together in causing insulin resistance, obesity, and of metabolic disease in general, um, I think has changed and is continuing to evolve. And as a result, I think it's shifting how we approach treating diabetes. You know, historically, we focused really on lowering blood sugar. Um, that has been kind of the goal of um, both preventing and diabetes and treating it. And we kind of talked about hemoglobin A1C, which is how we measure the average blood sugar over the course of three months and driving it to be as low and as close to normal as possible. But now we recognize that it's much more important to treat and prevent the complications that may develop um, as a result of diabetes, because those occur across a whole spectrum of blood sugar levels. And we have new medications that have been introduced and are increasingly recommended that not only lower blood sugar levels, but also reduce the risks of diabetes complications like heart disease and kidney disease and death. So the, and then you even this year, um, the guidelines are recognizing uh, obesity as another important target of managing diabetes, recognizing that we can't truly treat um, diabetes without treating um, obesity. And then the last thing I want to note is increasing attention to uh, reversing or putting diabetes into remission, because we used to think that that's not possible. And once you have uh, type 2 diabetes, you'll always have type 2 diabetes. And again, we recognize that with intensive lifestyle therapy or uh, medications, uh, weight loss surgery, there are ways of reversing uh, diabetes. Mm. And I think that's really important. And uh, Dr. Galloway-Gilliam, um, as we look at, um, at, at studies, um, you know, let's talk about the, the diabetes prevention study um, that I think that you have uh, have looked at, been a part of. What did it look at? What did it what did it discover with yes, type two diabetes? Yeah. Yes, thank you. So the the, the diabetes prevention program um, was a study that was published in two thousand and two, and what it looked at and it looked like this in uh, around three thousand patients, and there were three arms to the study. One arm was for an intensive lifestyle intervention. So this was lifestyle modification, lifestyle medicine. Um, and that arm was involved in a program that occurred over 24 weeks. And during that 24 weeks, participants uh, participated in a structured program where they had 16 sessions with a health coach, Usually these were uh, registered dietitians, physicians, and uh, exercise physiologists with the primary aim of decreasing body weight by 7% and increasing physical activity. And the physical activity goal was for 150 minutes uh, per week of uh, moderate uh, intensity uh, activity. That was one arm. That was a lifestyle arm. The second arm was an arm that was stratified to a medication called metformin. Metformin is a 
very kind of a foundational medication in diabetes management. And that arm was stratified to metformin at a dose of 850 milligrams twice a day. And then there was a placebo arm that received neither of, of the other two interventions and sort of just stratified to what's called usual care. Mm-hmm. And they found pretty remarkable differences in the incidence of, of diabetes after about three years, so much so that the study was actually stopped uh, a little bit early. Uh, what they found was that lifestyle interventions decreased the um, progression from, and I should say, sorry, that, that this population of patients had uh, prediabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they found that uh, the lifestyle intervention decreased the um, occurrence of diabetes progression to diabetes by about 58%. Lifestyle, um, excuse me, metformin decreased it by about 31% and both compared to placebo. So it's really remarkable to see this is um, really hard uh, data that shows how powerful lifestyle interventions can be um, in preventing the progression from prediabetes to diabetes. And Dr. And I, I want to pause you there. So the, the yes. in the study, the lifestyle intervention uh, there was a, a decrease in the progression, you said, by about 58%. But then when we looked at medication, metformin in particular, the decrease was about 30-something percent. 30, in the 31%. In the, okay. So that shows that uh-huh. the just how powerful the lifestyle intervention for type 2 diabetes, how how just how effective it is. Correct. For, for preventing progression from prediabetes to type 2 diabetes. Okay. Another type. What is prediabetes? I think I said in the uh, intro um, that one in, one in three people, I have in my notes here, according to the C- CDC, one in three people uh, has prediabetes. So what is it when a doctor tells you you're prediabetic? What does that mean? I consider it to be a a sort of a a warning sign. It it is a state of dysregulated uh, blood sugar regulation, but not as severe as diabetes. So it essentially means you have an increased risk of developing diabetes uh, later on in, in life or perhaps sooner in life, depending upon where you are on the on the spectrum. So that's that's what the study looked looked at was this population who had prediabetes and, mm-hmm. and looked at preventing progression to diabetes. Dr. McCoy, what do you want to say about uh, uh, prediabetics? Uh, what does that mean when your doctor tells you that, and what should you do? Yeah, so you know, with prediabetes, it's it, it's it's what it sounds like, right? It's the blood sugar levels that are above normal but they're not yet at the stage of having diabetes. So it's really a great opportunity to intervene and mm-hmm. put diabetes into remission. Uh, you know, in the diabetes prevention program, lifestyle uh, management was able to delay the onset of diabetes by four years and with medications delayed by two years. So we know that this is there's a lot of opportunity for patients uh, to intervene and reverse um, the likelihood of having diabetes. Now, if someone does have prediabetes, their risk of ulti- progressing to diabetes if they don't do anything is usually between 5 to 10% every year. So it doesn't mean it's going to happen this is right away. So again, mm-hmm. there is that window of opportunity to reverse course. And so how is this even diagnosed? Is this part of just like when you have an annual checkup and they, you know, they they take blood work and and run labs and they can what they can see in your blood level? How is diabetes diagnosed, Dr. McCoy? 
There's, so it is with a blood, with a blood test, um, and we recommend starting to screen, meaning look for uh, diabetes in patients who don't have it yet, um, starting at age 45. It can be done in several different ways. The most common is a fasting blood sugar level, um, and that, uh, we, if it's normal, we, re- we screen every three years. And if somebody has prediabetes, we monitor every year to make sure it doesn't progress uh, to diabetes. But when we check a fasting uh, blood sugar, we can, depending on the level, it can either be normal if it's less than 100, uh, 101 to 125 is that prediabetes range. And then 126 and above, that enters um, the type, the diabetes range. And we typically do need two tests kind of done uh, separate days uh, to confirm the diagnosis of diabetes because our blood sugars do fluctuate. Unless, of course, the blood sugar level is very high on that test. Um, If it's over 200 and somebody has symptoms, then we can make the diagnosis right away. Oh, I'm sorry. Go right ahead. Go ahead. Now, I do it. There's uh, two other ways that diabetes can mm-hmm. be diagnosed. Um, the other common way is hemoglobin A1C, right? And that measures an average blood sugar over the course of three months or so, uh, because it measures the percent of red of hemoglobin in our red blood cells that has a sugar attached to it, and that measures kind of a slightly different aspect of high blood glucose because it's not a single point in time, like the fasting blood sugar level, it's more of a long-term average. But that similarly can be used uh, to diagnose, you know, prediabetes and diabetes and doesn't require us to be fasting. And then the third way is a glucose tolerance test, which isn't as commonly used anymore outside of diagnosing gestational diabetes, which is a third type of diabetes that occurs during pregnancy. And um, that test really checks for insulin resistance or impaired glucose tolerance because we look to see what happens to somebody's blood sugar levels after they drink this really sweet drink. Because um, normally, when we, glucose, you know, once we drink it, it's supposed to enter our cells. But with imp- uh, insulin resistance, that happens more slowly. So again, these three tests are, can all be used to diagnose prediabetes and diabetes. They measure slightly different things, and each one has been linked uh, to health outcomes. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I want to take some phone calls from our listeners. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking about diabetes, the diagnosis, the 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 treatment, the prevention of diabetes, both type two and type one. Uh, do you have diabetes, or do you believe that you are at risk? for developing it. How were you diagnosed? What impact has it had on your life? And what helps you manage your diabetes? And what is still a challenge? Have questions for the doctors? Call us. The number is 651-227-6000. Again, 651-227-6000. You can also call 800-242-2828. In Lakeville, let's take a phone call from Susan. Susan, thank you for calling in. Thanks for waiting. What did you want to ask or share? Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, My husband has a brother and a father who both have diabetes, and his doctor is monitoring his A1C levels. But my husband is 40 pounds overweight, and he will not listen to me when I say, you know, it's time to lose weight. So I asked his doctor when I went to an appointment with him to please address weight. And his doctor poo-pooed it and said, oh, you know, you don't need to worry about it. You know, maybe lose one pound a week or something. I I can't even remember what he said, but I just felt like the doctor wouldn't address it. And I told my sister this, 
And she had had the same experience with her doctor. And so I know that weight management is really important, but it's been my experience that even when asked, doctors don't necessarily address it. And Susan, I, I want to clarify, uh, your husband, um, does he have type 2 diabetes? No, he does not have diabetes. And they are monitoring his A1C levels. But as a preventative measure, I was thinking it would be a good time to lose weight as a preventative measure. He does; he has not been diagnosed with diabetes. But his, you said his brother and his father have diabetes. Yes. So you're concerned uh, that this could be yes. part of it. And do they have type 2 diabetes? I, I don't honestly know. Okay. I, I'm assuming they do. Okay. Well, let's talk about what, what you mentioned. Your your main concern is that in conversation with doctors, you describe it as the doctor poo-pooed, uh, talking about obesity and the connection between obesity and, and, and weight loss and diabetes or, or other diseases. And uh, Dr. Uh, Galloway-Gilliam, what would you say to that about these conversations that we have when we have our our, our, our checkups with our doctors? Uh, what do we find with doctors in asking questions or talking about weight? Yes, that's a great question. And it is something that is experienced more often than uh, would be uh, ideal. I think it stems from a multitude of factors. One is that in medical education, unfortunately, we don't often experience a lot of training around lifestyle counseling. And so sometimes physicians aren't don't feel like they are well prepared Mm -hmm. to have those really uh, intimate and deep conversations, detailed conversations around lifestyle change. Uh, Another factor is that it, physicians are of course human beings as well. And sometimes the physician feels uncomfortable, feels uh, concerned about potentially stigmatizing their patients and uh, wants to uh, help their patients to, you know, feel comfortable about uh, the, their, their body and, and is concerned about body image uh, issues, um, which can ultimately lead to this uh, negative phenomenon where really important issues around weight management are are not addressed, unfortunately. And the other factor is that sometimes if patients have a multitude of downstream factors uh, related to either they're they're, um, living with uh, overweight or obesity or another condition, there can be a time constraint where uh, physicians are managing those issues uh, and have a difficult time uh, carving out the time to discuss weight. I would say that it's important to be an advocate for yourself when you are meeting with your physician to say, listen, I this is something that's really important to me uh, and I, I, I would like to talk about it in more detail. One strategy can be to schedule an appointment to specifically talk about weight say, I'm here to discuss my weight and let's table everything else as long as there mm-hmm. aren't uh, acute uh, issues and, and, you know, emergencies that need to be addressed. Because that could open a door to a more honest and helpful conversation. Correct. Not just about diabetes, but also heart disease, right? Correct. They are all very uh, closely related. There are over 200 obesity-associated conditions. Mm -hmm. And so when you manage weight, you are by default helping to improve 
a lot of other chronic conditions because there's this common factor, as I mentioned uh, earlier. The other option is to request a referral to a weight management center. If you aren't finding that you are uh, getting the care that you need uh, around your weight, you can uh, ask for a referral to a weight management center. All right. And Dr. McCoy, uh, you're a primary care physician. You meet with patients. Is there a reluctance to talk about weight management and obesity when you're seeing patients? And, and you know, Susan's concerned about her husband, who she says, you know, needs to lose some weight. His brother and his father both have diabetes. What would you say to her? Yeah, I mean, I think one, I think it's, I'm just really uh, proud of them for raising this issue and being advocates for themselves, because I absolutely agree. This is, you know, an important um, issue. And, you know, a really great opportunity and time to reverse, you know, the potential development of diabetes down the road. And like Dr. Um, Galloway-Gilliam said, in primary care practice, when we're so many often acute um, issues to deal with, I think often there's kind of the, uh, you know, we run the risk of having what's called therapeutic inertia, where things just kind of go with the flow and, and may not, uh, not everything that needs to be addressed uh, may need to be addressed because we prioritize the more urgent things. And with obesity uh, or being overweight, it's it's always been very challenging because, you know, in primary care, we don't have a lot of training and experience uh, potentially in managing um, obesity there's been a lot of innovation and developments with medications and lifestyle therapy, but that may, we may not, not everyone may be aware of it or have access to it or have prior experience with those either not being successful or not being covered by insurance and not being accessible because there is a big gap um, in insurance coverage for weight management uh, medications and interventions. So I think it's, it's a lot of factors that come up that caused this. And the biggest uh, thing I always say to my patients is really to be an advocate for themselves and to ask for you know, the help that they need and make sure that they get it. And mm-hmm. scheduling dedicated appointments uh, to talk about something specific is always a very good idea to make sure that that's addressed and coming kind of with your agenda which of what to discuss, mm-hmm. which does sound like you're doing. Mm-hmm. In Apple Valley, Jim is on the phone. Jim, thank you for holding on. And what did you want to ask or share? Yeah, thank you. So um, the other day I was watching um, a guy on TV talk about diabetes. Mm-hmm. And um, they were asking him about, you know, the relationship between sugar and diabetes. And what he was saying is that, you know, it's more uh, weight gain, uh, being overweight, that's more of a risk than than how much uh, sugar uh you consume and then that led to a question about uh well what about the sugar in fruits is that um is that type of sugar better than than just regular table sugar or other types of sugar all right good question jim in apple valley asking about diet and the sugar and the foods that we eat what does he need to know uh dr galloway gilliam yeah, so this is a great question. Uh, one thing you know, I'll say, uh, the way that we traditionally have thought about uh, diabetes and the development of diabetes being independent um, of uh, sort of 
how much sugar you're eating as long as it doesn't impact your weight. I think we have to start thinking about that a little bit differently uh, based on uh, some of the science. There are folks who have diabetes who are not uh, living with overweight or obesity. And so clearly there is uh, another parallel relationship here where uh, what we're eating and how it's uh, processed by our bodies can also negatively impact our metabolic health through blood sugar dysregulation, independent of what our weight uh, is. But the question around the type of sugar we're consuming absolutely makes a difference. So the sugars that we are getting in sugar-sweet beverages or dessert items are different from the sugar that we're ingesting in fruit by way of it being in one setting in its natural state, and that's with fruit, and then in the other setting being in a more processed, easily digestible and absorbed form, which has a different uh, biochemical impact when we ingest it. So when we're taking in sugar through fruit, what we have are other protective factors that go along with that sugar. You're getting the, the fiber, which helps to slow down the rate at which the sugar is absorbed um, and the rate at which the blood sugars peak and thereby the insulin peak, as opposed to what we're getting in sugar-sweetened beverages or dessert items where those protective factors are not present. Also, quantities. So in a um, orange, for example, you're going to have much less sugar content compared to what you would find in a uh, Snickers bar. Um, and so it, it, it does differ. It, it makes a difference. Now, you can, I have definitely had um, patients who have overconsumed fruit. Uh, and so mm. it's not that it's not possible to evoke um, a pronounced blood sugar response from, from fruit, uh, but it's less likely. Everybody's body is different, too. So, so we talked about genetics. And so what impacts one person's blood sugars um, in one way may not impact the next person's blood sugar in the same way. And so there are ways to monitor for that, particularly if you're living with diabetes, with um, blood sugar checks after you consume certain fruits. There's also a scale called the glycemic index or glycemic load that can help to predict how a food item is going to um, impact our blood sugars. It's not a perfect um, metric, but it, it can be a tool that uh, is helpful. So, so yes, there, there, there's a difference. And Dr. McCoy, what do you want people to know about what we eat and the types of foods that, that have sugar and that connection to um, having diabetes? I think Jim's question is, you know, the one that I get probably the most often, and I think mm -hmm. it's one of the most important ones as well. And we think about it in kind of two stages. So first, the, uh, eating, you know, high sugary foods and then developing diabetes in the first place. And, you know, for type 2 diabetes, I think the bigger pro it's, problem is not eating really sugar, but it is two things. So one, the overall Ca uh, calories uh, that we eat that would result in weight gain that would cause, among other things, you know, insulin resistance, um, you know, really that cycle of excess calories, inflammation that's caused by processed high glycemic index foods. Um, all of that culminates in increased risk of developing diabetes. So ultimately, no matter what we eat, it is going to somehow end up in 
glucose or a source of fuel uh, for our bodies, right? So excess calories themselves will increase the risk of developing um, type 2 diabetes. Now, things that are highly processed and they become glucose much, much faster. Mm-hmm. And that increases the stress on the body. It's almost like it's a shock to our pancreas in a way. So that's a much bigger burden than something that is much you know, slower released, much less uh, processed and much less sugar. And the same thing when you already have diabetes, the, the rate with which that glucose enters our body impacts how y- your own like remaining insulin secretion can deal with it uh, or whether you need additional medications. And then the second part is for all the food that we consume, it, it's we need to get the additional nutrients, right? We need healthy fats, we need proteins, vitamins, minerals. So things that are highly processed and only contain sugar, they don't really have any other benefits uh, to us as opposed to fruit, which have a lot of the other things that we need in order to stay healthy. So we kind of have this balance of how many calories and how much nutrition we need to get in a given day. And I always advise counsel my patients to get them in the healthiest, most balanced way possible. And things like, you know, sugar-sweetened beverages, sweets, you know, really processed food, Mm -hmm. they often don't have a lot of nutritional value. It's empty calories and a shock to our body and our system. So it's better to eat things like fruits and vegetables um, that have a lot of nutritional value. So the biggest lesson for somebody, message of someone who is living with diabetes already is that carbohydrates especially are not the enemy, right? We need to really think specifically about what kind of food we're talking about. What is the nutritional value? Because there's a lot of healthy carbohydrates out there like fruits and vegetables that we do want to make sure stay a part of the diet. Let's take uh, more phone calls from our listeners. As we talk about diabetes, you can call us at 651-227-6000 in Minnetonka. Lisa's on the phone. Lisa, go ahead with your question. Yes, hello. Hi. I I am wondering if you could speak a little bit to insulin resistance. I've heard that it slows your weight loss progress. And how do you know if you have it or can you be tested for it? All right, Lisa Minnetonka. Uh, Dr. McCoy, what is insulin resistance? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Um, So insulin resistance is when really our body is not able to respond to insulin, whether it is insulin that our pancreas makes ourselves or even insulin that somebody may be taking for the management of their diabetes. And as a result, the glucose that we have in our blood isn't entering the cells. And when someone has insulin resistance, in order to kind of get the insulin's job done, the pancreas starts to make more and more insulin. So this is ultimately what often culminates in the development of type 2 diabetes and other metabolic uh, disorders um, where there's increased blood glucose levels, increased weight, high levels of circulating insulin, which isn't working properly and not getting the job done. And it becomes a vicious cycle where insulin resistance can cause high glucose levels, can cause more stress, can cause more weight gain. That weight gain can then itself cause more insulin resistance. So it becomes, unfortunately, this vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. And And that can lead to the development of type 2 diabetes and other conditions. And Dr. McCoy, we've not yet talked about the cost of 
insulin shots. Uh, we know there's been a huge problem. How has Minnesota uh, addressed that? I think Minnesota has really, I think, led the nation actually in tackling um, the high costs of diabetes. You know, we've had a, there's multiple health plans uh, in Minnesota and now starting in, you know, 23 uh, in Medicare uh, Part D plans, they're going to be curbing the out-of-pocket patient costs for insulin. Uh, in Minnesota, we also have you know, legislation that was passed um, that allows individuals to get low-cost um, insulin at pharmacies for emergency use so that nobody uh, goes without insulin who needs it because that is life-threatening uh, for people living with type 1 diabetes. And there's also uh, multiple assistance programs uh, that exist to help people um, get in, get the insulin that they need. So I think a lot more work needs to be done uh, to make insulin affordable and accessible uh, to people who need it. But we've we're in a much better place now than we were even, you know, three, four years ago. Mm. Uh, let's take a phone call from Ramsey, Minnesota. And Ramsey, Judy's on the phone. Good morning, Judy. What's your question? Well, I have a brief question about the relationship of um, pre-diabetes and diabetes type 2 and pancreatic cancer. Mm. Um, it so happens that my husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer after being diagnosed with pre-diabetes and then diabetes 2. And he has, mm. I just feel like if he had been diagnosed earlier, and I don't know what that would be, but Mm -hmm. Maybe we could have done something to save his life. Mm. All right. I'm sorry to hear that, uh, Judy. Uh, thank you for, for calling. Uh, what do we know uh, about the connection between diabetes and pancreatic cancer? We talked about, you know, diabetes leading to, um, you know, other, um, you know, poor health outcomes. Uh, anything that you can say um, to Judy, uh, Dr. Galloway-Gilliam? That's a great question. And um, diabetes can be a rare symptom of, new onset diabetes can be a rare symptom of uh, pancreatic cancer as we think about the role of the pancreas in uh, insulin secretion uh, and uh, formation. And so when the pancreas, the, the cells that are responsible for creating insulin in the pancreas uh, are destroyed or overtaken by a malignancy, the way that they may, may, may manifest is with uh, diabetes or, or new uh, blood sugar regulation issues. The issue is that this is uh, a fairly uncommon occurrence, and it's not something that we think about often when we are uh, assessing patients for uh, diabetes. I think that uh, uh, you know, on a routine kind of review of systems as you're talking to patients about the, the symptoms that they may or may not be experiencing with uh, with their diabetes, diabetes is diagnosed that may present um, some, some clues, but not all the time and probably not most of the time because pancreatic cancer is often, unfortunately, uh, very silent um, until uh, it's advanced in its, uh, in, in its presentation. So it, 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 it is often a malignancy that is uh, diagnosed late, unfortunately. I want to take another phone call as we uh, get to the end of the hour. And this is... Um in Minneapolis. This is Amy on the line. Amy, what did you want to ask our doctors about diabetes? Hi there. My question is about obesity and weight loss as it um, relates to diabetes. 
I hear a lot of the medical community saying if we can just get people's weight down, we can reverse their type 2 diabetes. But we know that people who lose weight are against really hard odds. You know, mm-hmm. some things say 95% of people who lose weight will fail to maintain their weight loss, gain it back, and maybe gain even more weight. Mm-hmm. And we also know that lifestyle choices are more complicated than just deciding to have a salad or go for a walk, right? There's a whole lot of socioeconomic factors that go in yes. to that. We know Americans are getting fatter, and we know that you can be overweight and still exercise and eat vegetables. And so my question is, at one point, do we just quit treating obesity and start treating diabetes? All right. Um, Amy is looking uh, for solutions as we, mo- as we move forward. And what would you say to her, Dr. McCoy? I think, Amy, you bring up a really important point just about the complexity of managing both uh, diabetes and obesity and really the bi-directional complicated relationship between the two and how just how difficult it is, I think, to achieve normal weight. Um when someone is already overweight or obese, because it, it is hard. Um, but we know that there are things that we can do uh, to help our patients lose weight with you know, medications, uh, weight loss, surgery, and, intense, and lifestyle therapy. There's, there is a lot that we can do. I do think that the treatment strategies in type 2 diabetes have primarily not focused on weight so far. They really have been focusing primarily on lowering blood sugar levels without addressing um, obesity. And in part, that's because we didn't have effective medications to support weight loss. And in fact, many medications that we had to treat diabetes either didn't impact weight or even caused weight gain. Now that we have more medications for type 2 diabetes that also can support weight loss, I think it's really been a paradigm change in how we approach simultaneously treating the two conditions. Because like Dr. Galloway-Gilliam said, they do have that kind of sibling bi-directional relationship with kind of this interwoven web of problems, which is why it's been so difficult to break. Mm -hmm. So I think to your point, we really, I I think we need to... help our patients tackle both. Um, and Dr. I'm going to I'm yeah. have to end it there because we are out of time, but it is encouraging to know that we are learning more. There is progress happening and people are clearly curious about what they can do, how they can help control this. Thank you so much for your time and thank you to our listeners who called in. We were talking to Dr. Rosalina McCoy, an associate professor of medicine there at Mayo Clinic, as well as a primary care physician and Dr. Dr. Aisha Galloway-Gilliam, an internal medicine physician and obesity medicine director there at Hennepin Healthcare. Thank you for your time today, doctors. Today's conversation was produced by Maya Backstrom. Be safe, everybody. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.